This is a Crow's Nest podcast. Hi and welcome to Titanic Talkline. I am Alexia and I'm excited. I'm always excited. I always start this off by saying I'm excited, but it's true. But I'm extra excited today because I am joined by someone who is a friend of mine in real life and who knows way more about the ship than I do. So that's very exciting. It's my friend Craig. I think I've mentioned him a few times on the show, but here he is for real. Hi, Craig. Craig Sopin. Hey, Alexia. Nice to be here. <laughs> Good to see you again. We We met at the Titanic convention last year, which was... An extremely fun time, but also one of the wildest experiences in my life. <laughs> it was fun, though. How did I ask everyone the same question? Because I've already talked to you about it, but can you, for everyone who's listening, what is your Titanic story? Because you're extremely involved in the Titanic community. You so you almost have your hand in every pot in the Titanic community. <laughs> <laughs> well. My trigger was a simple trip to the library. I had a school project as a kid. And as I'm approaching the library, I see this really neat headline in the window. And it said, Titanic unsinkable sinks on its maiden voyage. And even at that young age, I'm thinking to myself, how can people think that they're creating something that's unsinkable that can possibly overcome the forces of nature? We couldn't do it then. And we can't do that now. So that, that part of the story really intrigued me that it didn't merely sink, but that the Titanic sank on its maiden voyage of all times. So when I got inside the library, I pulled out the microfiche and I started reading about the Titanic. And uh, I would like to say the rest is history, but it wasn't <laughs> because I did get involved in reading and learning about the ship. It was um, sort of a passion for me at a young age. But then there was sort of a break in time because I was a student and I had other things to read and other things to do. And one day I saw an advertisement for an autograph of a Titanic survivor. And I said, well, that is really neat. I didn't Mm -hmm. know such things existed. I don't mean survivors. I mean, autographs of survivors. (laughs) No, we took all uh, the survivors afterwards and we put them in one giant barrel and they've never been allowed out. (laughs) And, And this was an autograph of Milvina Dean, who ironically was the youngest survivor and the oldest uh, survivor as well, because she died last of all the survivors, Mm. which you think would be intuitive, but I would think it would be counterintuitive because it would be a huge coincidence for that to occur. And in fact, I got to meet her and to know her pretty well throughout her uh, later years. And I read up on Melvina Dean and I learned a lot. And now I'm really starting to get intrigued about Titanic's story. And for me, was a passion that this time didn't stop. So I saw something else advertised. And I said, well, you know what? I'm going to try and get that too. I think it was a newspaper or something. Mm-hmm. And I read that and I learned more. And it turned out that every time I acquired something else, it was a learning experience for me. And mm-hmm. I happened to love to learn. So at this point, I have between three and 400 Titanic-related artifacts I say three and 400, not that I don't know the number, but some of them have (laughs) multiple, there are multiple parts of one artifact. So it's tough really to count it. Right. But I've learned a lot through the artifacts. And I also have to admit that, um, you know, holding a Titanic artifact, and I know you have held one, Mm -hmm. but doing that provides me with a much bigger thrill than going into a museum and looking at it behind plexiglass or, or reading about it in a book. So that's really how I got started. And how it continued, I know that um, most people, their trigger points were either reading a book or watching a film or having a family member on board. I didn't have any of that, but the closest I did come was a family member of mine did plan a feature film back in the 1940s. And it didn't happen, but I wish it did because I would have had that connection as well. I think that you, like me, are like a really tactile learner and that it's 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 all well and good to see something in a museum or read about it, but there's um there's just something different about being able to interact with something and I don't know, it this is gonna sound silly, but it, like it puts weight to the situation. 
I think, you know, you watched me with the, with the life fest and that my weirdly enough, my first initial reaction, not out of disappointment was like, that's all. And that, you know, you hold it, you're like, this is it. This is, this is what everyone had. This is nothing. This is a paper bag covered in plastic, covered in cloth. What is this? But it was surprising. And then you heard me talk about it where I was going off about how, not really, but just how it's so different from a modern life fest and what we expect from things now. It's really interesting to be able to actually see something that you see in a photograph in person. And it's something else altogether to be able to interact with it. Yeah. Um, there's a, an artist, I wish I remembered his or her name, who said that there are some paintings you can look at for a month and not remember them at all. And there are other paintings you can look at for a second and remember them for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And I see that with the Titanic artifacts. I mean, you can get a letter anywhere, but when you're looking at a Titanic letter, you're getting a different story altogether. You're finding about how the person lived, how they felt. And sometimes when you research it, how they died. So everything I have, there is that tactical experience with it and holding it. And it, it gives me that, that thrill, that emotion. But it also means that it's something that I continue thinking about. There isn't a day that goes by that I can remember that I don't touch something that was on Titanic because mm-hmm. I have it. And um, it, just, it just provides that surreal experience to me of being very, very close to the ship and remembering the people who were lost and also those who survived. So you are absolutely right. Touching these things, holding these things, seeing them up close, learning about them in person is a lot different than merely reading about them behind glass in a museum. Not that I don't like museums. I I Mm. love them. I can spend, I can have a, a small exhibit in a museum that I'm looking at and spend hours on end just looking at it, examining the things, reading everything about it, and going all around it. But once again, I could look at other things that I own for one second and remember them for the rest of my life. I went to go see the big piece. Um, not, I didn't go to Vegas just to see the big piece. I went to Vegas for other reasons. And while I was there, I decided to go see the big piece. And uh, I've told the story on the show before, and I almost hate telling it because it makes me feel bad. But there's a million signs, and for full disclosure, there's a million signs everywhere saying don't touch. And I fully know, I know how to read. I'm sorry. And, you know, honestly, if someone had asked me, you know, how do you feel about people who do stuff like that? I genuinely am a, usually I don't like it. Mostly because I saw, I see some photos of like the Dutch tulip fields and they have signs saying like, don't stomp on the flowers. They will die. Stay on the main path. And you see a million photos of tourists standing in the middle of the fields taking beautiful photos. And I get annoyed because you can see them standing on flowers. And I feel like I did the exact same thing because when I was in Vegas and I saw the big piece, I leaned over the rope and I touched it. But there was something so, there is something so profound about that interaction. I was standing at the back of the piece by this point in time. And I was looking up because I'm a short person through the porthole. Um, and it was just an odd moment where I was like, this could have been someone's last view. This right here through that glass stuck. And that was a horrifying moment for me. I'm not a claustrophobic person, nor am I afraid of being underwater. But all of a sudden it was like, I gotta get out of this room and I gotta get out of this room right now. There was no water in it and it is huge room, but I needed to leave it. And come back in to find my friends because in that moment for a second, it was so easy to just get sucked into that, the tactility of that feeling. Even though, as I said, we're in a museum in Vegas inside of a giant <laughs> glass pyramid. I'm totally safe. I'm, I'm more likely to be abducted by an alien than, you know, taken by the Titanic. But it was, it was enough to sort of make you think, oh gosh, that, that could have, that's what it could be like. Yeah, well, the day after this episode airs, I think we're going to see some plexiglass now around the big piece. I'm just, I'm just kidding with you. It's entirely I think, possible. <laughs> I think everything you did is fine. And actually there's a little big piece that's in Orlando, Florida. And um, I would say likewise, it's pretty easy to get up and close and personal with. It reminds me of when I was in Philadelphia at the Liberty Bell and somebody wanted to touch the Liberty Bell and, and the kid's mother said, Oh no, 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 you're not allowed to touch the Liberty Bell. And he said, well, there's a, there's a, a stanchion there, just a cord. I can go under it. And she said, you know, if you do that, there are going to be all these bells and whistles that go off. Well, the kid walked under the cord 
and there were no bells and whistles. And he got to touch the Liberty Bell. And after that, other people started to do the same thing because I think we have a need to connect and to Mm -hmm. connect with things as close as possible. And then you were looking through one of the four portholes on the big piece. And that's amazing because I, I didn't do that. I, I did look at it from afar when it was in Atlantic city. And I look forward to seeing it again when it's in Vegas in August, but I know the, the exact feeling you meant. And so many people I speak to say that when they're close to something that was part of Titanic, they get very emotional. I've actually seen people cry holding a piece of Titanic before. So it, it does evoke that kind of response from a lot of people. And you were very passionate about the Titanic as well. And that's why you had that response. It's true. But, you know, like I was saying, I don't, I spend my time going through social media being like, ugh, these disrespectful people. And then I do the <laughs> exact same thing. So it's sort of like, well, I'm just a giant hypocrite. But, you know, it, there is something about Titanic that is compelling, that can compel someone to read a newspaper article and collect 300 to 400 artifacts <laughs> or someone to watch a movie someone else made and start a podcast about it or someone to find out about a person and write a novel. There's so much that comes out of it in a in a way that I almost think that's certain that not everything in history it's become romantic in a certain way and in the sense that, you know, sort of the civil war kind of has where people write songs and ballads and make movies and <laughs> write books about it. Titanic. And I talked a bit about it with, with Don Lynch a little bit is sort of an odd moment in that it's almost become mythos in a way and that it's a real thing, but there's a lot of, there's almost this reverence around it. That's turned it into this thing. That's not even real. I don't know if I'm explaining that properly. No, you are. And we certainly don't have a shortage of disasters that happen in this world. And, yeah. you know, what what um, picks out Titanic amongst all of those? And a lot of people have different answers to that. For me, it's the initial trigger that got me into it. The fact that the Titanic sinks when it was supposed to be practically unsinkable and that it did that on its very maiden voyage. Another thing is the sex appeal that you kind of alluded to on the ship. The fact that the uh, band played until the end, that the captain went down, that the Titanic was a microcosm of society at that point with the different class structures, etc. And all of those things put together make for a very, very compelling story. And, and then I love the fact that I happen to live in an area in Philadelphia, which is number two for the number of Titanic passengers in the United States. Of course, number one worldwide was Southampton because there were so many crew members that went on board and that's a great spot to acquire artifacts, or at least it was until I was there. Mm-hmm. But, but um, Philadelphia had the second number of passengers, most of whom were first class and the first number of passengers that were on Titanic, uh, as you may guess, was New York. Mm-hmm. So that was number one. I am number two. And because it's number two here, I I've gotten to visit a lot of, uh, let's say more of the macabre, the gravestones and some of the families that are still here and some of the homes that people lived in. So all of that, I you, you said at the beginning that my interests go out in many directions. You were absolutely right. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in Titanic story, the passenger story, the postal worker story, the, um, the story of the band, how they played to the end and gave up their lives for this, the engineers who kept the lights on until the very end. And there are just so many directions that this ship goes in. It's just amazing. And for someone who collects things, a lot of collectors you know, have a niche area that they collect in. I sort of collect everything. And, and one of the biggest portions of my collection is the Macabre. It is the body recovery mission, because I think that that story is little told and I think needs to be told a little bit more. The books that are written on the body recovery mission, and I'm, I'm aware of two of them, are very thin. They're thin books. And because there isn't a much, there isn't a lot in them, but there's a lot more to be told and a lot more that continues to be discovered. Let's talk about it. I just now thinking about it, don't talk about that a lot on my show. Not because, oh, sh- nobody could talk about it, but simply because <laughs> as you're saying, the knowledge is not as omnipresent. I don't often get people who are experts in the Mackie Bennett or you know it's almost as though people's not to say everyone but a lot of times it feels as though the interest sort of ends with the ship sinking and it's not to say that the aftermath is unimportant but it's sort of this part of the story that gets glossed over 
And I, it's interesting and I'm not really sure why, honestly. Well, I think it's interesting to note that unlike many other disasters, the Titanic disaster didn't happen on impact. If there's a plane crash, people die when the plane crashes. If there's a train derailment, that's when it happens. If there is a natural disaster, such as a hurricane or a tidal wave, it comes out and it kills or injures people. But with Titanic, there was no disaster when it hit the iceberg. There was a problem, which ultimately led to a disaster, but it took over two hours for the disaster to occur. And that's a little unique in terms of disasters. In fact, other ships that sink normally don't take two hours plus, two hours and 40 minutes to sink. So we have the the disaster that occurs a lot later. And people are interested in the disaster. People are interested in the recovery mission. That is the recovery of the survivors. But you're correct. It, the story for a lot of people normally stops right there. And I think it's because the rest of it is quite dark. Yeah. And it's we're talking about embalming. We're talking about burying the dead at sea and going through funeral services for them. We're talking about shipping bodies either across the country or across the world. So it's very difficult. There is a, a lot of people don't know about this, and I hope this does get written about at some point in in an upcoming book of someone's. But there was a railroad in England, and it was called, it was run by the Brookwood Cemetery, and it was called the Necropolis Railway. Very interesting um, railroad railroad because the sole job of this particular railroad was to carry dead people and it was to carry them to the Brookwood Cemetery, I think located in Surrey, England. And there are some Titanic victims are not buried there, but actually Titanic survivors are buried there who I think took the Necropolis Railway. Their bodies did anyway. And uh, I think it's the Duff Gordons who are buried in the cemetery. But these are the things that I'm talking about when I say we don't have enough information out there in the book. So my collection consists of the logbook of the McKay Bennett. So we actually see um, certain days that they go out and launch boats to pick up bodies and even pick up wreckage. And if you don't know, it was a real big deal to launch a boat on the McKay Bennett or any of the other rescue ships or recovery ships, I should say. So the fact that they were doing this for merely wreckage meant that they felt some connection to Titanic as well. They would go out and pick up lifeboats, uh, wreck wood, flotsam, and things like that. In addition to picking up the gruesome task of the bodies, they would bring them back to the ship and they would be embalmed where they would be buried at sea because under Canadian law, where the ships were headed, you could not bring back a body on land unless it was embalmed and they certainly didn't have enough embalming fluid. So you can guess who was a priority in embalming and that would be first class men. And a lot of third class were, were buried at sea. So we then have another ship that goes out the, the Minia, another cable ship that goes out. Once again, they picked up a lot less bodies. The Minia did 17, I believe. And some of those were buried at sea as well. Then we have the Momani and the Algerine, and each of these ships have crews with stories that they can tell, and some of them have told through diaries, each of them about how the task made them ill, emotionally ill and physically ill, picking up the bodies from Titanic. The fact that they couldn't take the life jackets off of the bodies that were in the water because the knots that were used to tie the, the jackets to the body were frozen together. And they had to actually cut the life jackets off, which is today how you, one of the reasons, one of the ways you can tell if a life jacket came from a survivor or a victim, because if it's from a victim, surely the life jacket uh, strings would be cut. They just couldn't undo it. And each of these have these different stories and they were writing home to people telling them what it was like. And then of course the bodies had to be brought to the Mayflower curling rink in Nova Scotia. And they had to be identified with an amazing system. Uh, parts of that system was used to identify bodies in September 11th as well. And 
there were photographs that were taken of each of these bodies by the provincial coroner. Only six of them, only six of those body photos survive. And four of them are in my collection and two are in someone else's collection. And for some reason, they did not make it into the Nova Scotia archives. And, but to look at them, to actually look at the faces of the Titanic dead is just an amazing experience, not for the faint at heart, of course, but these are the things that really have to be talked about. The fact that, that all of them still, all of these people still don't have names that are buried in Halifax. The fact that there was a, an unknown child who has now been identified and that the McKay Bennett crew took up a collection and paid for this individual to be buried and paid for his headstone. There's just so much out there. And that's why I am extremely interested in the body recovery missions and their aftermath because they're just, it's just not talked about. And I think it's a, a story that really does need to be told. One of these days I'm going to get to look at that book and those photos. Um, but I think well, that I, I can simply show you the photos, the book you can see in the museum. That's fair. But uh, what I was going to say is I think that a lot of people, because we don't talk about it, I will say that the, and, and LA knows this too, from the unsinkable podcast. Um, one of the most in-depth sort of stories I've heard about the McKay Bennett was her episode talking about it simply because as you're saying, it's not an oft discussed story and the weight of it is probably largely why, because when you, what I think what we're not like, I don't know for people who don't know these, the, the McKay Bennett and all the other ships um, or boats, whatever, however they're classified that went out to do body, re body recovery were, you know, fully crewed vessels that were launched out there with the explicit purpose of grabbing these bodies. And as Craig said, a lot of people give interviews about how they arrived and they thought that it was, you know, the white was like snow or it was something else, but it was just, a sea of life vests, hundreds and hundreds of people just in front of them, bodies and bodies and infinite numbers that had also been by then a few days exposed. You know, now we have helicopters and we have airplanes and they can get to the recovery site almost instantaneously. You know, we watched the, um, we watched the Costa Concordia sink in real time because we had cameras right there able to see it people were able to get there but these crews got there days weeks afterwards these bodies had been in the water exposed to the sun exposed to the air exposed to fish and animals and other things and these poor souls had to paw through them attempt to identify who they could identify embalm and care for the bodies that they could and everyone else was returned to the sea person after person after person after person after person after person after person a macabre and repetitive task it's like bagging groceries you something you're doing constantly for hours but in the most morbid of contexts if titanic had happened today we would have those helicopters overhead mm -hmm. we would have seen the pictures of those bodies bobbing up and down in the north atlantic we would have seen that there wouldn't have been much of a mystery anymore. And, you know, if we had seen those bodies today, people would have been fired, whether they worked for the White Star Line or whether they were contracted employees, but not a single person was fired, demoted or anything like that as a result of this disaster. And that's kind of hard to believe yeah. because you see, you see today that somebody says the wrong thing and they are resigning. Their resignations are requested or they're just flat out fired. And with Titanic, it didn't happen at all. And the errors that occurred that were involved in that sinking surely should have let, led to someone being disciplined, fired, or retired. And it didn't happen. But the view of those bodies today itself would have been enough without even investigating anything would have um, promoted a lot of protests, demands for people to be vilified and criminally charged. And that didn't happen either. 
And it's funny because we talk about this on my show all the time and we've never discussed that before. And the general opinion is like, they did everything that I could. They did everything right. I'm talking, they being globally, like the crew and, and all people involved in the disaster. But you're right in that, you know, it's almost a weird sort of grace that we don't apply to situations today where the minute something happens, we're like, heads will roll. And I'm not saying that either approach is necessarily bad or good. Um, obviously, people do need to be held accountable. It's just interesting, as you said, because now it's sort of this demand for action immediately. And if action isn't immediately taken or some visible steps not taken, people assume that nothing is happening and that nothing will change. Yeah. And there there are so many errors that were made. And, you know, it's sort of like a plane crash where there are so many hands on the throttle. There's never only one reason. Mm-hmm. And of course, the most immediate reason was the iceberg, but what led up to that? So we have an ice warning that didn't make it to the bridge. We had a captain who, uh, at least Senator Smith in the American inquiry said was neglectful because he was going too fast through a known area of ice. We have arguably the inappropriate maneuvers both before this, immediately before the collision and immediately after the collision. And we have so many other little things that occurred, the potential of the brittle metal in the ship and uh, the fact that David Blair took the key to the crow's nest cabinet that contained the binoculars. If any one of these things didn't occur, Titanic may have been saved. But there were a lot of little things which either together or individually resulted in this disaster. And, you know, there are so many other theories as well. Well, J.P. Morgan didn't make it on the ship and he was having some financial straits at the time. Maybe he coordinated this whole thing in order to collect the insurance money. Well, I don't think so. First, I don't think J.P. Morgan is is a murderer. I was about and, to say, that's a that would be a big well, job. I mean, to be fair, to be fair, never mind. That, that, that just seems drastic for, I don't know anything about J.P. Morgan, but just... Given the scenario and the history of the time, it's like that would have been a real, really big move for him. Oh, yeah. That's a far-fetched theory, but it is a controversial theory, and they point to two things that proves it. And I'm putting air quotes around the word proves. And that is, one, he was supposed to be on the ship and canceled at the last minute. And two, he was having some financial difficulty, but he wasn't poor. And in any event, he would have had to have so many people involved in a conspiracy like that. For instance... The ice warning to the bridge would have had to have been intercepted by somebody. The captain would have had to intentionally been going too fast through the ice flow. And uh, David Blair would have had to intentionally taken that key off the ship in Southampton rather than inadvertently. So is it possible? Well, practically not. Is it plausible? <laughs> no. That's not, but there, there are just so many things involved. And part of my collection is um, also involving the, uh, the different theories of the sinking as well. So I have some radio ice warnings, for example. I have some very special testimony that hasn't come to light concerning the maneuvers of the ship, both before and after the collision. But I think we just can't overlook the one overriding factor in this collision and that is that there was an iceberg in titanic's way and that's what sunk the ship was the iceberg in titanic's way or was the titanic in the iceberg's way because i'm not i'm joking it i you're right though i i think that might be why we discuss it and why it scares people it's because natural disasters are horrifying and whenever something involves nature in a certain way basically this unaccounted for mystery. It's terrifying. I'm afraid of sinkholes. I will tell anyone who will listen. And it's because it's conceptually you're, there's nothing there. uh, Everything is fine. And then New York city is gone. It's just, and there's nothing you can do to prevent these things. There's nothing you can necessarily do to facilitate them. Sometimes stuff just happens. Sometimes there's a tsunami. Sometimes there's an iceberg though with global warming, there's going to be way less of those. I told someone that eventually people are going to have to start the Titanic story instead of going, well, Titanic had an iceberg. They're going to have to go, Titanic had an iceberg. And an iceberg was. Yes. Well, you know, I think Titanic's logbook would tell us a lot about what happened and maybe clear up some of these theories, maybe even confirm some of these. And, you know, a lot of people think that the logbook went down with the ship. And I don't think that. 
I think Titanic, Titanic's logbook exists, and here's why. The rule of the sea was on a sinking ship, the logbook get put, gets put in the pouch, and that pouch containing the logbook is given to the highest ranking officer that makes it off in a lifeboat. In this case, that would have been Lightoller. And if that didn't happen, the question is, why? It's not like Titanic sank in two minutes. They had over two hours to get that logbook off the ship. Um, the other why may be because there was something in there that Lightoller or his family didn't want anyone else to see. Maybe it was damning in some way. It may have shown culpability that we only possibly talk about now. And I do know that there are other things that are written concerning the Titanic story that have been secreted for over a hundred years, which if publicly known would change the story of Titanic in a way that would upend what we see in films and what we read in books. And those things occurred from the time the Titanic hit the iceberg until the Carpathia landed in New York. So I know for a fact that things could be hidden. They could be secreted for long periods of time. And Titanic's life uh, logbook might have been one of them. And I am, I can't say that I'm convinced as an attorney, obviously I need evidence, Mm -hmm. but I would say that the preponderance of the evidence, that is what was supposed to happen, leads me to believe that it likely exists somewhere or it did exist and was destroyed. I don't, the only reason I would say I don't know is simply because I don't know who they expected to survive. Did they expect Lightoller to survive? Because he... He survived because he got washed off and, and and then found the other lifeboat. But that was almost a happy accident. I guess I'm just wondering then, like, did they expect that he was going to make it? Or did they expect that Murdoch was going to be the one that made it? Or did they think it was going to be Boxall or something? Like, I wonder who they would have thought, like, you for sure take this. If That's the only evidence I'd, I, I personally might yeah, have. If, well, the way it worked on other ships is if they didn't know who's going to survive, they do wait until the last minute and give it to the highest ranking officer that they think is going off. So it didn't have to be Lightoller. It could have been someone else. Who I'm trying was to think of, yeah, I'm trying to think of who the highest ranking officer that like intentionally boarded a lifeboat to crew it was. I can't remember who that was off the top of my brain right now, though. Um, I think we were probably talking about Pittman. Yeah, either Pittman or Lowe was going to be my guess off the top of my brain. Yeah, well, Lowe is fourth and Pittman is third, so. Yes, I, for example, yep. I have no, I don't know. That would be the only. I don't, I I don't know. Based on your story, this is just the wrench I conjured out of nowhere to throw (laughs) into it. But I have no proof either. Oh, no, I don't think anyone has any proof unless it exists. And then that family has the proof. Can I just say, though, that it, this is a personal thing that I hate hearing that that not this is not your fault. This is just a general rant where it's kind of like I hate hearing that, like, oh, if we if only we could release this information on this really public world event, it would change everything. I'm like, it was the fucking Titanic. It happened in 1912. If it's going to shatter history, shatter history. I get so annoyed when I hear stuff I'm like just tell us. What the evidence is, let the world know. I This is just me complaining, and I'm sure there's very legitimate reasons why that information is being withheld. But me, personally, sitting in my little office wearing a shirt of a skull with a party hat on it, is just <laughs> getting mad about this because I'm like, tell me, tell me things. There, there are reasons. and <laughs> I'm sure. Fa- families feel that some of this information could be disparaging towards their relative or towards I'm them. I'm sure. And that, so, that was my personal, yeah. my personal guess. And I... Maybe it's because I'm personally a very gracious human being. I'm thinking I would never. People would be nice, but I, I understand. I, I do. These are complicated. I I, I talked to um, Cliff Ismay not too long ago, speaking of complicated people, where it's like, no matter how much evidence you can throw out there about him, or no matter what you want to think about him, everyone's like, he sucks, he should burn! <laughs> no matter what, no matter what. And there's there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm like, I don't necessarily think that man was a villain. I just... Think he had a hard life. I don't think he was a villain either. I yeah. I think his survival helped explain yeah. Titanic's story. His father, by the way, is kind of resp- is is partly responsible for there not being enough lifeboats on Titanic. If if you consider there not being enough, there is a an interesting story at the British Inquiry 
there was a high, a formerly high-ranking man at the Board of Trade who testified, and they wanted to know about you know lifeboats, and his name was Sir Alfred Chalmers, I think it's C H A L M E R S. See, if I had these questions, if I knew what I was going to be talking about in advance, I would have looked it up. But I, I'm pretty sure that's his name. I just Googled and, it, and the first result wow. I got is day 23 of the Titanic Inquiry Project, the testimony of Sir Alfred Chalmers. Okay. And so also, I didn't he, know that either. So, Well, he the, the interesting thing about his testimony is he shocked a lot of people uh, on all sides because his testimony was, you know what, if there were less lifeboats on titanic more people might have been saved he said what in the world are you talking about he said no 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 i'm not advocating for less lifeboats on ships because thomas ismay bruce ismay's father even winston churchill approved a long time before at least 18 years beforehand lifeboat requirements that required only the, the number of lifeboats based on the weight of the ship and back then there weren't a lot of ships over 10,000 tons. And then, then we had them. But Chalmers gets up and he says, I think that if there were less lifeboats on Titanic, more people would have survived. And they start banging the gavel and objecting from everywhere. And they said, can you please explain what in the world you're talking about? Are you saying that there should have been less lifeboats? He said, absolutely not. Not saying that at all. But I'm saying that if there were, I think more people would have survived. Why? And he explained himself. And I had to think about that. To some extent, I think he may have been right. I'm and that attempting. is... Okay, I was like, I'm well, here to speed read through it and it's not working. So uh, please tell me. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, here's... <laughs> I haven't read it in a long time, but here's what I remember. What he said was, the reason why the lifeboats at the beginning were going out with only five people or half full or something is because the passengers had a certain complacency knowing that there were more lifeboats and that if they missed this one, they would simply get the next one. And it wasn't until the end when people saw that, well, of course, towards the end, people knew they were going to sink. At the beginning, they they were kind of suspicious. But also, towards the end, they knew there's only two lifeboats left. So now we need to cram this lifeboat. There's only one left. This is the last last one. So what he was trying to say is if people thought that there were only a couple of lifeboats left, they would have crammed the initial lifeboats. And perhaps if you do the math and if you figure it out, there is some way, possibly, depending on how many lifeboats he would have suggested, you know, proved his theory, that more people could have survived. Now, he... He didn't become the uh, crown prince of <laughs> of the inquiry for making this suggestion. In, no, in fact, really. In fact, in fact, this was one of the uh, I, I guess more controversial theories that was discussed, and they probably were sorry that they called him to testify. But if you start doing the math, and I remember a long time ago, I did do the math. I said, okay, what if we take two lifeboats away, and people start you know, crowding the lifeboats from the beginning, it's possible. All the lifeboats could have only held 1,167 people, which is about one-third of the capacity of Titanic and about half of what was, I mean, less than half what was already on the ship. But but I don't know. I mean, it's possible. There are so many, so many theories you can think about. Even the number of people that survived and the number of victims is still controversial. When someone asks me, hey, how many people survived the Titanic? Oh, I don't go there. I say, well, you know what? Somewhere around 700. And you want to know how many people died on the Titanic? Well, it was somewhere around 1,500. And here's why. Thank you. Thank you. That's exactly how I answer that question, too. When someone got mad at me, they tried to correct me on Twitter. (laughs) Actually, it's one thousand. But the minute you quote a number, you're in trouble. That's right. I remember. I remember I used to work in the state office building in Philadelphia and down the hall from us was the um, boxing commission, something like that. And there were people, there were state employees who said that I want to go into the boxing commission to weigh myself. And I'm well, why are you doing that? Don't you have a bathroom scale? 
you're probably wondering, where am I going with the story? And they said, yeah, I have a bathroom scale. But when you get on the scale of the boxing commission, this is the commission that certifies somebody as a welterweight or a heavyweight. That is the number that counts. That is canon. And that is official. So I want my official weight. So there is actually an official number for Titanic survivors and victims. But other than the official number, which if I remember it, I'll reveal in a second. But people disagree on whether, well, if you die on Carpathia, are you a survivor or are you a victim? If you die in the lifeboat, we've had examples of this on Titanic. Do you survive or do you die? How? What column do I put you in? What if you die a year later as a result of diabetes that they claim it came as a result of being in the frigid water or something like that? Are you a victim from pneumonia? Yeah. Are you a victim now or are you a survivor? So that makes it very difficult to come up with exact numbers. So. Then comes Phil Gallen. I don't know if you know him, but he was he was a brilliant passenger researcher. Unfortunately, he died too early, but um, he was a good friend. And he came up. He did some real soothing with respect to these numbers, and he came up with one thousand four hundred ninety six mm-hmm. victims and seven hundred twelve survivors for a total of 2,208 people on board. And of course, if we watch the Cameron film Titanic, well, Jack didn't even count on there. They may not have counted him. Uh, I remember old Rose at the end saying, you know, there wouldn't be a record of him would there. So there are situations perhaps like that stowaways that aren't counted at all that died in the wreck. But when we want to look at an official number, and I would never quote this because the official number is wrong, yet it is canon. It uh-huh. is the official number of people who lived and died. And that was the number determined by the Board of Trade. Right. And that was, I think, 1490 okay. as dead and 7-11. Who survived? And if we do that math, I think we come up with 22. I'm doing it now. I don't remember this to be the number. 2,201 people on the ship. So that official number is missing at least seven people that were on the ship. But if somebody says how many lived and died, well, you can say the official number was, and, and don't quote me on this, I may not be right, but 1490 is the official number of dead and 711 or whatever it is is the official number of survivors. That is canon and that is official. And until such time, if ever, that someone files a petition before the Board of Trade to amend the official numbers of dead and they put a seal on it of the Board of Trade, those are the official numbers. So there are just so many controversies Mm -hmm. within Titanic, not only about how it all happened, but who was left on the ship. I would also like to say that I quickly Googled it just to see what it said. And I have three different answers <laughs> for both victims and survivors. So for survivors, I have 705, 711, and 712. For victims, I have 1490, 1496, and 1517. So the point is, <laughs> no one really knows. And like you were just saying, records, even now... Even now, today, when we basically facially scan everyone, my boyfriend and I are going on a cruise and we have to do all those things. We're like, what is your name? What is your name? Are you okay with your photo being used? Are you okay with your uh, photo scan with the facial recognition? It's like, you're documented everywhere. But even today, I don't think there would be a way to know for 100% sure the, the, the white star line, I'm making up a ship now, like, Kapeterik went down in 2023 and it had exactly this many people on it. It's like, how do you know that at the very end there wasn't a stowaway or that one extra person got swapped in or swapped out or this or that or that the family of four didn't, you know, one person didn't get sick. There's no way to know for sure that you have a perfect count of anything because there's always an element of human mystery. And the same is true, especially true for things of the past where there were paper tickets. You didn't have to scan, you know, Murdoch's face for him to get onto the boat. He just said, let me on. I'm who I say I am. Look at the uniform. And they were like, yes, sir. 
you didn't, it wasn't the same as it is. It might've been more involved in that. Nobody at me, but you know, it was different. And there, and as you were saying, there's just no way to know. So I do what you do. And I say about 700 and about 1500. And I leave it at that. Is there an RMS to Pederick? No, I, I, <laughs> I added IC to carpet. I'm just, carpet. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. <laughs> I knew you would know the answer to that, but just in case somebody was like, oh, I'll look that up. Please don't. It's just carpet with, it's the word carpet combined with the word rhetoric. But I, I used to get the response you would get too when you'd throw out a number because I used to throw out numbers and I think the old numbers were 705 survivors and yeah. you know, 15... 02 or something dead and i used to throw that out and they would say oh you're absolutely wrong maybe survivors are right but the victims are wrong so now i just do that the catch-all is i don't know somewhere around there how can you not know aren't you interested in the ship well really the truth is no one knows but i think phil gallon did a heck of a good job in coming up with a couple of numbers oh i I was not trying to denigrate his work at all i think that is incredibly impressive and i would never be able to do it the only thing i was trying to do is put that asterisk on there and be like you just you can't know. And the only way I think you'd be able to know is if you could teleport back to 1912, you boarded the ship on April the 10th, and you kept a meticulous census, basically, of every single person that got on and off at every single dock. And then you did another one when you left Southampton. And that you can assure that there were absolutely no stowaways. And I can tell you for you sure, <laughs> there is no perfect security then or now only the perception of it so there could have been multiple uh stowaways on that ship we just we just don't know you mean to tell me that the tsa helping themselves to titanic passengers jewelry wouldn't have stopped this disaster (laughs) well we all we all know that there's no real security in this world i mean people show up everywhere with guns and they shouldn't have been in there in the first place let alone with a gun and uh you know i as you know I was a, a victim of a burglary myself in, a, in one of the most secure buildings in Philadelphia. And people had to pass through five levels of security to overcome it. So uh, things changed since then, but I, I just couldn't have believed that it happened. And I represented someone who ended up in a place, I'm not going to say where, but ended up in a place that no one, no one should have been. And I just don't know how these people do it, but it's doable. So back then, without the security techniques we have today, it certainly could have happened. I don't know how it was allowed once, but I used to live in Maryland and I was wandering around downtown DC, which is just not a thing I normally normally do because it's chaotic. But I somehow, I was just walking around. I think I was walking to the Metro, had my headphones in, not paying attention. And I got stopped and had to stop um, at a crosswalk once but I was I think too close to a presidential motorcade and it wasn't on purpose I was just walking and you know I wasn't so close that I got like tackled or anything but it's definitely one of those things that they were like oh stop right there <laughs> don't move your feet anymore <laughs> okay I'm just gonna <laughs> freeze but you know it's that same sort of thing like I wasn't doing it to be malicious I wasn't trying to get close to the motorcade I'm not even gonna say which president it was that's how nice I am. Oh, come on, but tell. It was Trump. But uh, <laughs> I never had an issue with motorcades beforehand because no other president felt the need to leave the White House that many fucking times. Just that guy. But, you know, <laughs> the point being is that I wasn't even trying to do anything. And you can just stumble into wild situations because you're not paying attention or someone else isn't paying attention or, 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 or they were thinking. They're like, clearly they hear the signs. No one will get this close. I had headphones in. There's, as you said, no such thing as perfect security. And whether by accident or intent, things get by. Absolutely. And again, like you said, with stowaways, there's just there's just no way to know. And the unfortunate reality is that to this day, there are still people from this disaster 100 plus years ago that don't have names who have been unclaimed. That is correct. And, you know, I mentioned before that the coroner took photographs of every single mm-hmm. person the provincial coroner did. And today we have facial recognition software. So wouldn't it be great if we were able to take those images from the coroner's office, run it through facial recognition software today and try and give them names. But of course we have two problems with that. Number one is 
we need a template. We need some type of benchmark. So they didn't necessarily have a driver's license that's on record somewhere. So we need to get a photo of them back in 1912 or before in order to match the image with the facial recognition software today. Right. Two, and by the way, I, I was just amazed that I've learned this in, in my business with driver licenses and trying to recognize people that what they do, I'm thinking, how in the world can you match a face to another face and sort of make like a DNA um, blueprint that is almost 100% accurate? And, I, you know, people look alike, don't they? I mean, twins and things like that. And the way I found out they do it is they measure the tragus of the ear, like the earlobe, down to that little, oh, what do you call it? The, the, the thing in the lip, the commissure of the lip. No, upper. Yeah, right there. What is that called again? I don't know, but I call it the center of the Cupid's bow. That's not the, re- that's not <laughs> the real title, but for visual there's purposes, actually, there's, that's there's, there's actually a name for that. For some reason, I'm having a mental block. I know so that there they, is, and I don't know what it is. They they measure that. Even if you're a kid, they measure it because the relative distance remains the same when you get older. And then they measure between the eyes in some way. And they say that doing it that way means that you're almost certain getting a hundred percent match. So we would need, we would need to be able to do something with that. So the one problem is in doing that is that we don't have the image of the person back in their day when they were alive. The other problem is, as I mentioned, only six of the photographs have survived, survived. Apparently a child, there, there was a book with all the photographs in it from Halifax and a child, somebody's kid involved in Halifax took a crown and went through all of the coroner's photos and whoever was couldn't bring this book back to the provincial coroner. So I guess it somehow like became lost. Apparently the the word is that it got thrown away except for the six images that weren't defaced. And there are a couple of those images that don't have names and it would be nice to be able to give them names but perhaps someday. I mean, uh, organizations like Titanic International have ended up giving names to some of the people who were nameless before through just brute research. But there's still a lot of people who haven't been named. And of course, a lot of people who have been lost. There is somebody who was named, in my view, that was misnamed. Um, In addition to the unknown child, he was misidentified and then re-identified. And there's someone who was buried uh, right here in Pennsylvania who has the name of an individual, a Van Billiard child, who I think is actually one of the Aspland children and belongs in Sweden. Oh, that's interesting. Again, there's, it's just so hard to know, you know, without the permission of these families now, you, you'd have to exhume and DNA test. And that's just so much for some people. And I can understand why they don't want to, but it, it's a lot because you could learn, you could learn so much and try to bridge these gaps and, you know, if I had the historical resources, I would probably do a lot more digging into Murdoch just to try to find out what happened to him. He's my favorite person, but there's just so many mysteries that you can take here. You know, what happened to this person? What happened to that person? How many people were there here? How many people were there there? What happened to these people? It, there's there's just so many mysteries still involved. No, there's a, t- there's a Time Tunnel episode. I think it was the very first episode of Time Tunnel, if you know what that show is one of the Irwin Allen productions where a couple of scientists are experimenting with time and they mm-hmm. keep getting thrown back or around into major events throughout the world in history. And mm-hmm. on the first episode, they get thrown onto the Titanic. And of course they know everything that's going to occur and they try to convince the captain, which would have been a big mistake because if they changed history, we don't know what result that could have been. Right. But, had they known, I mean, they didn't do, I guess, a lot of research into the episode, but they were kind of wondering how they were going to get off the ship. And had they known about Murdoch, they would have certainly gone to the starboard side and gotten into one of the lifeboats there. So I know you said that you didn't know what happened to Murdoch and, and his story really needs to be told too. His family knows some things about him, but not a lot about his final moments. But I can almost assure you of this. He didn't shoot anyone. 
I like to think that he wouldn't. And I think this is, you know, we're getting to the realm of mythos here, but, you know, the mythological figure that has now become William Murdoch, it just seems... I don't know. I mean, I could hear the, I could hear the argument either way. Dan Parks happens to think that he did he did kill himself, and I'm very willing to hear that argument because as someone who has had a lot of stress and have had mental health issues personally, I, I, this is not me saying they all had mental health issues. I'm just saying me personally, I can see where the stress of a situation, all the boats being gone, and everything just being bleak. I could be like, well, I'm not waiting for the ocean. Not. There was one of the funeral directors in Halifax at the Mayflower Curling Rink who was quoted as saying that one of the bodies he was examining had a bullet hole in it. Mm. Wasn't wasn't Murdoch. But that was a that that appears in the book, if you ever want to get it, um, Titanic Touchtones Touchstones of a Tragedy. That quote is in there. And it's just amazing that no one has explored that story because I mean, why not track down this guy? I, I can't do it. I just do a lot of things. I just can't get to everything. But it's one of the things I would love to do Same. because we know the name of the funeral director. Why not track down his family and see what stories have been told you know, through the family? But like we said, Titanic goes out in so many different directions. And someday when I retire, hopefully I can devote full-time efforts to researching more about Titanic than I have the time to do now. That's something that maybe in the future I'd also like to try to Murdoch's story in particular is a thread that I would like to follow. Mostly also, like I said, he's my favorite, but also I've not done a lot of research into him, so it would be starting from scratch to try to build his story back up from the beginning. There are some things I'd like to get, some things I'd like to add to my collection, uh, chief among them being the Titanic's logbook. Yes. But I don't think, if it's around, I don't think I'll ever find that. And, you know, there is... Have you ever, I don't know if you've seen A Night to Remember. I remember hearing on your podcast that you didn't see it. You finally saw it. Okay. So in that scene where they have Andrews in the first class smoking room at the end, just standing there stoic, looking at the picture, the, the picture should have been Plymouth Harbor, but the producers of A Night to Remember didn't know what Plymouth Harbor looked like. I don't mean the harbor itself. I mean the painting by Norman Wilkinson. So they got another painting of Norman Wilkinson that was on the Olympic rather than Titanic, and that was approach to a new world. And I just can't get that image out of my head. It is absolutely stunning. If you can do a, a someday a Google search on that, I mean, you have the Statue of Liberty mm-hmm. in the background and various ships approaching it, and that's what they used to fill in for Plymouth Harbor in that. I and and that actually was on Olympic and that painting was saved. I would love to get my hands on that painting someday. And uh, I have, I have some paintings relative to Titanic, but my favorite part is Titanic signage. I love signs dealing with Titanic. Mm -hmm. Not that you're asking me about it, but um, the signs continue to tell stories that people can't anymore. They survive when the people don't. So I love that kind of stuff. I think I have two sort of artifact goals i want to and i know this is these are things that are probably never going to happen but i just want to it would be nice to do i would love to ring the bell that they recovered i know that that is a long shot but that would be amazing and i would really like to see murdoch's bag in person the one that was brought up i don't even you know it would be amazing to go through it but just to see it <laughs> i you you've met me i am nosy and i like to know things <laughs> what's in here what is it tell me but well, I'm sure I'm sure you're thinking of ways now to try and ring that bell, just like the little kid who went to the Liberty Bell. Yeah, kind of. I'm like, OK, <laughs> who technically owns it and how do I become their best friend? Well, the crow's, <laughs> the crow's Nest Bell is probably one of the more impressive things that have come off that ship and probably yeah. in terms of money, the most valuable. I know. And that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they're going to. You didn't see it at the Luxor Hotel when you were there? I don't know is where it, it is at this I moment. Don't, I, don't I don't know. Think it's the, I don't think it was there when I was there. If I don't know where it's per- – hang on. I'm going to Google it. It's usually on display, and there are only two possibilities. One, storage. Two, Orlando. Or three, the Luxor. Uh, it says right now that it's in London. Oh, there is a traveling. Yes. Yeah. As I was going to say, I know that it's not – it wasn't there when I went there because I would have for sure made a beeline. I like bells. <laughs> bells make noise. Um, Wanted to see it, but yeah, I think it's not there right now, but – 
anyway i have now kept you for an hour officially so i especially because now it's like what like nine or nine nine o'clock for you so any i'm definitely gonna have to have you back because i have way more questions and also i just enjoy talking to you but thank you so much for coming on to my show i know it's different to have a conversation with me and just chit chat it's totally different to come on someone's show <laughs> oh i've chit chatted with you before huh? I'm used to it, but no, this was, this was a real pleasure and I appreciate your having me on. Well, thank you so much for coming on and to everyone else. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Titanic Talkline was created and produced by me, Alexia. Be sure to keep up with the show on all the social medias at Titanic Talkline on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That is all one word. Titanic Talkline, T-I-T-A-N-I-C-T-A-L-K-L-I-N-E. If you want to get in touch, be on the show, sponsor the show, or have a question or anything you want to tell me, send me an email at titanictalkline, again, all one word, at gmail.com. That's titanictalkline at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Bye!